his words, and they saw him as the savior of the world. So the focus in Samaria seems to be not on his miracle working power, but on his word. Okay? Okay. I hope you guys are kind of keeping track of this. In verse 42, they say, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Oh, I'm back. This is a better response than anything Jesus has gotten so far among his own people. How odd. Interesting. So Galilee is where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Galilee would be like a country or a county, and, and Nazareth would be a city within that country or county, like Josephine County, Grants Pass. Okay? So here, about 10 miles north of Nazareth was the town of Canaan. And this is where he turned the water into wine. We know that story. And about 15 miles east from Canaan was Capernaum. Now, this is where the official son is at, and he's sick. And this is what we've read in the story. So, Galilee is Jesus' hometown, homeland in a special sense. It's where he's from. It's where he grew up. It's where he was... He was uh, spent most of his uh, uh, young life growing up around people in that community. So he was very familiar with that community, and they were very familiar with him. Now, he's leaving Samaria, which is not his homeland, and now he's returning back to his home stomping grounds. Does that make sense? So he's going home. Now, here's the first odd thing that needs to be explained, I believe. In verse 45... Let me see here. Verse, actually, verse 43 has the word for in it. It says, after two days, he left for Galilee. And that means this, this verse is a reason for why Jesus is going back to Galilee. He has a purpose, and he's going there with and for a purpose. So it seems like John is intentionally saying and conveying to us in the scriptures here that Jesus is intentionally going back to a place where he's less honored less honored than he was in Samaria. And he's coming again to his own people, knowing they don't understand him and they don't honor him for who he really is. But is this anything new? It's really nothing new at all. John 1, chapter 11 sets the stage for this strategy. John chapter 1, verse 11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus' statement of verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown or country, might seem strange to us. To go back to a place where they probably will misunderstand you, where they will probably reject you, where they'll probably throw rocks at you, and in the end, this is what got him killed. But that was why he came, wasn't it? So the second odd thing that needs to be explained is the way verse 44 connects to what follows. If you're following along in this scripture here, he says he goes to Galilee, he goes to his own people because he expects no honor there. Verse 45, though, says when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What? Why did John put it that way? Jesus just says in the verse before that a prophet's without honor and is not without honor or is without honor in his own home country. He's, no one honors him. But it says that he arrived in Galilee and the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and the Passover festival, for they also had been there and they had seen it all. So what's going on here? This isn't what we expect. 
They're supposed to dishonor him according to verse 44. You know, how can John write, a prophet has no honor in his own country or own hometown? But verse 45 says, therefore, they welcomed him. So which is it, John? I think the answer is to the welcome, to the reception, and not what it looks like. It, it is truly not what it looks like on the outside. There's a kind of receiving of Jesus that has no true honor for his person. It's just an interest in his signs and his wonders. Ooh. It's more like, okay, Jesus, what can I get out of this? Ouch. Got real quiet in here. This is an attitude that is not new in the John's gospel. We've seen it before. Do you remember over in John chapter 2, we read last week in verses 23 through 25, it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They believed in his name, but they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew that he was man. He was in man, excuse me. This scripture kind of has an unsettling effect on us for a moment. This, this whole thought, just for a moment, what it says, I believe, in John 2, 23 through 25, in essence, is this, that Jesus knows what is in everyone's heart. So he can see when someone believes in him in a way that is not really believing. John wrote this stuff for a reason. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart perfectly leads to the unsettling truth that some belief is the kind of belief that does not obtain fellowship with Jesus and does not give us eternal life. Oh. Some belief is not saving belief. You know, it's, it's kind of a facade. It, it's, it's a display of belief. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I even wear the T-shirt. Jesus, I wear the t I believe. How many of you have met people that they wear the t-shirt, they got all the signs, but you watch the fruit of their life, which we get to see, and it's no fruit that you'd want to partake of. It's just, I'm speaking truth, guys, in love. So it's not an abiding trust in true faith in Jesus as the Messiah or as the Savior I wrote, but merely a temporary belief based on the excitement caused by witnessing his miracles. These people whose belief was fleeting and was superficial, they were the very ones who abandoned Jesus when he was needed the most. or he needed, They just left him when times got hard. When times got tough, they abandoned their faith. And we've seen this in the last two years when the winds of adversity came. We saw some people around the country, abandon their faith and leave. This Jesus stuff just isn't working. I'm taking my football and I'm going home. How many have seen that? How many know friends that have walked into that? Yeah. So now contrast this with what the Samaritans said. The emphasis there didn't fall on the miracles, but fell on his word. We have heard him for ourselves and we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Another illustration of this false faith or superficial kind of welcoming or receiving of Jesus is found in his own brothers. 
John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 says, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. But verse 5 says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. John 7 verse 5 says that they talk like this, even his brothers didn't believe in him, because here he comes to his own, he comes to his own brothers, and, and they do not receive him. Or they think maybe they're receiving him, just like the people in Galilee think that they're welcoming Jesus, but they don't understand him. They don't have eyes to see. They don't honor him. And, they, and even though they make a lot to do about his miracle working power, they don't believe in really who he is, that he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Savior of the world. And that's what we're seeing in John chapter 4, verses 30-whatever, all the way through 48. They welcomed him, yes. But it says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone. In other words, they welcomed him because he had seen the works of his power in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus is coming to the very people knowing that their attitude is this. They had a sign-seeking attitude. This is what John's trying to convey in this message. And when John mentions Jesus coming to Canaan in verse 46, once more he visited Canaan in Galilee, it says, where he had turned the water into wine. He draws our attention to the fact that this is the place where he had done the first sign. And what did he do in the first sign? He revealed his glory. No one else saw what he did except the unnamed servants. And it says his disciples, they believed. And then all of a sudden enters the official and the sixth son. Well, we might think for a moment that John is turning our attention away from this sign-seeking attitude of the Galileans. And, and John tells us that this official shows up at the end of verse 47. But that's not what he's doing. In fact, he's, he's going to make a strong, super strong indictment against the Galileans. And we're going to read this in verse 47. It says, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived from Galilee... In Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So Jesus says to him in verse 48, this is harsh. Jesus looks at him and says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Jesus is speaking to not only the man, he's addressing the whole crowd. He's addressing his home village, his people. All of Samaria, uh, all of Galilee, whoever was there, there must have been a lot of people. He's addressing the crowd. And now, now, this is what we've been talking about in verse 48. Unless you see signed and wonders, you will not believe. He's basically saying, you are assigned seekers and you are wonder worshipers. It's like as if Jesus is saying, this is what I wrote. You say you believe. But in your belief, like the folks in Jerusalem in John 2, 23... And like your brothers in John 7, 5, it's not a real kind of belief that honors me. We call a belief, but it's not the kind that unites you and me together as one who treasures and sees me as the son of God, full of grace, full of truth, full of mercy. You're just after me for the signs. In fact, it dishonors me. So in verse 48, that's why he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. This is the most 
explicit indictment of all, along with verse 44 that says again that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Ooh, it's getting really quiet in here. But listen, it seems like Jesus, let's go back to this official. He's standing in front of Jesus. Was he in the crowd or part of the crowd who believed but didn't believe? Was he in the crowd who believed as a sign seeker but not as a savior seeker? Was he a lover of Jesus' power only but not a lover of his person? We're about to find out. It seems to me that Jesus is testing this man. The official is asking for a miracle for his dying son. He has a fever and he's dying. He's in a crowd of people who see and they love to see miracles. And Jesus seems to be asking everything going on for the same reason any unbelieving person would love to see a miracle. And that is, I have a need, Jesus. Will you fix it? We're always praying Jesus at something. Instead of saying, God, like the word says, seek first the kingdom. Father, I just want to seek you and your glory. And, then, and, and, and if that's your heart and your passion, I know some of you are all in on that. You see God and his glory first. And then when you begin to pray, you're not praying Jesus at things to fix things and fix that and fix this. You're saying, God, show me your glory. Show me where you're working at because I want to go where you're at and I want to co-labor with you. Amen? You know, we should be praying things like, or asking things like, Jesus, I've sinned. Forgive me. Give me the power and the strength to live and to give my whole life to you. Instead of just going, gimme, 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 gimme. I need, I need, I need, I need. And that's what these people were following. So unbelieving believers, they don't love God. They use God. It's truth. So Jesus bluntly says to the man in verse 48 that he and the other Galileans are what? They're just sign seekers. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Ouch. So, so how does this official uh, respond to Jesus' rebuff? How does he do it? This is interesting. He doesn't even comment on it. He simply gives this request and repeats it. Sir, come down before my child dies. Neither Jesus nor John comment on the man's sincerity. Jesus simply gives the man a gift. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Oh. And what happens? John says in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. What's remarkable about, about this is that the man had asked Jesus to come with him, but when Jesus simply spoke, go, your son will live, the man obeyed without question. The word says he believed and he went, right? So he's not insisting on seeing a miracle. Jesus, I'll go if I see a miracle. I got to see something big before I really believe. He didn't complain that Jesus wouldn't come with him either. John just simply writes, he simply left. And John says, believing. Many of you have received a word from Jesus, a word from God, and have you left that moment believing? Are you still saying, Father, I need more sign. Will you, show, will you light up that Christmas tree for me? Oh, now I believe. 
We start making deals. God in his word says this, if you believe it, it's done. We're moving forward. We're pushing out into the edges of, of miracles and signs and wonders. But I do not want, I, now hear me, I, I am all in for signs and wonders. I believe that we should live our lives in a way that we become that sign that makes people wonder. But we can't live our life in a way that we only move when God lights something up. We have to take Jesus at his word. Jesus said, go. He didn't say it'd be easy. He didn't say, you know, if you follow this 12-step, 14-step, 9-step thing, it's going to work for you. He didn't say any of that. He just said, come follow me. As we press out into the miraculous, as we press out into signs and wonders, we're going to see incredible things happen. But I don't want our attention to be focused on this. I want our attention to be focused on the glory of God. Because that's what comes and that's what brings healing. It's the glory of God. You can be caught up and believe just in the signs and wonders. You can be one of those conference people that run around to every conference and, and, and woohoo, chasing after the rainbows and all that. But, and and, and the, there's a place for some of that. I get it. But if that's all you live for, that's all you're doing, you're missing the point. You know, people are going, we want more, God. We want more. Give us more. I'm telling you, the moment you were born again, everything you needed was placed inside of you. The seed was planted. It's all there. And you just got to step out and trust Jesus at his word and believe that he is the Messiah, believe that he is the Savior of the world. And if you can get your heart around that, everything else falls into place. Amen. So... Verse 42 tells us what stood in the way of true understanding of Christ and a saving belief in him. This word, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown or country. There's something about being part of Jesus' hometown that tends to hinder their faith. No one in this room, I suspect, was part of Jesus' hometown. I could be missing it, but... And I'm just saying. So you may think, well, this doesn't apply to us. But let me tell you something. There's something deeper going on here. But the, the inner sinful impulses that made it hard for his own people to receive him and to honor him, those same impulses can be in you and can be in I, myself, me. And here's one of them. And it shows us how devious and subtle sin can be. Hear this, please. A sense of over-familiarity with Jesus. Matthew 13, 55 says, Then they scoffed. He's just a carp the carpenter's son. We know Mary. We know his mother. We know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. We know them all. They're scoffing at him. Now, they believe in this, the miracle power that he has, but they don't see him as the savior of the world. Now, I'm telling you, this mindset that was in them can be in us. We can become so familiar with the Bible so familiar. We can have that Bible sitting on our, our, our coffee table, wherever, or nightstand, wherever. We can have 12 of them around the house. Oh, I know the word. I'm so familiar with it. I, don't, I know it. I've met people that, that, that have read the book through and through, but they've never met the author. They've never experienced the power of the gospel. That's sad. 
We have people that, and, and it's easy for us to become so familiar with Jesus and with Christianity. We get the Christianese language down. We isolate ourselves. We kind of pull, the, pull this big old gate around us or build a fence or a wall around us to protect us from the outside. And, and then we get to this point where I've watched people really who have been believers for years throwing in the towel going, ah, it just doesn't work. There's really nothing that could blow my mind anymore. I, I, he's just too familiar. Familiarity breeds content. I'm telling you, it's, it's really important. John is showing us that we need to guard against these impulses. We have to guard our hearts against them. This kind, this kind of thinking will minimize his grace and his power in our lives. And John wants us to see that in this story. Jesus' grace and Jesus' power. When Jesus decided to heal the boy, it was all out grace. It's what it was. It was grace. There was nothing that man did that merited his faith. Nothing. Jesus said, go, your son will live. It was a grace. He heals this child in a very unbelieving atmosphere. Yes, he's provoked, Jesus is, by the sign, false, sign-seeking, false faith that abounds in Galilee. He's, he's disturbed by that. And yet, in that context, he gives a free gift of, of healing away. Boom. That's grace. When God comes and heals us for nothing because of us, he simply does it because God is good, and he's good all the time. And the second thing, and we'll kind of wrap up with this, John wants us to not only see the grace of the healing, but the power of it. This boy was dying. The power of Jesus to heal is seen in the fact that he didn't do it with, with, with following the man. He didn't go there. He didn't do signs and wonders to prove that, yeah, I'm God. Now I'm going to do this and send it out to the young man. He simply spoke a word. And he said, your son's going to live. And at, at, and at that point, when he spoke that word, everything in the stratosphere, everything in the atmosphere, everything shifted over that little boy. Everything began to align that young man's cells. Everything aligned with the kingdom of God in his little body. And in that moment, the grace and the mercy of Jesus poured out of the heavens and came down and touched this little boy, and he was instantly healed. The other thing that is so incredibly powerful to me was that it was immediate. It wasn't like in two days from now it's going to happen. It was immediate. So, so when Jesus speaks a word, distance means nothing. Time means nothing. When Jesus says it's done, it's done. It would not have mattered if the kid, little boy, was 15 kajillion miles away. There is no spatial limits to God's ability and I believe that for ourselves, God, as we press into, guys, as we press into signs and wonders and in terms of praying and laying hands on the sick, as we want to see people set free. Amen? Amen? When we do that, we need to realize when we speak with the authority, when we truly grasp the authority of who we are in Christ, and we go up to someone and we say, be healed, it's done. Amen. It's done because of the authority that we carry in us. I think we're going to come into a greater understanding of what that means. But John, in one four, John 1.14, he said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you seen his glory? Have you? 
Have you hungered to see his glory and to feel his presence in your life? Or have you just been more about chasing after signs and wonders and miracles? I'm not saying signs and wonders and miracles in themselves. I believe that most of those are for, for people who don't believe. It just, God demonstrates his powerful love and boom. And people are like, whoa. But you have to introduce them to the one that created that miracle for them. I'm all into going out and, and doing um, treasure hunts and all that. I know Barb understands this. But, you know, I was with a group of kids one time. And it was more about letting them feel this power. But they never seem to understand that you got to lead them to the one that produced this power. Have you seen his glory? We're going to play a song, and I want to invite you guys into his presence. I want you guys to go deep. we got plenty of time. I hope this made sense. John wrote this to show us that there's so many, seven miracles that are so amazing when you dig down and dig deep and see what John is really saying. John had a purpose and his purpose was to show us there's more than just miracles in Jesus. There is saving grace. Amen. So, Lois, you want to spool that up? And I just want to invite you up, if that's you. And I want us to just take a moment. Let's just worship God. And let's enter into his presence. And let's just watch God show up with his glory. Amen. We share a lot that in his presence, everything changes. How many want to experience the presence of God? Let's stand. You turn that up a little bit, Lewis, please. Yes, yes, Father.
Remember when Moses asked God to show him his face? He positioned himself for just that moment. I just want to encourage you this week to find a moment where you can position yourself to say, Father, show me your glory. We don't need to just see the signs. We need to see and experience and feel his glory. His empowering presence will come upon us and give us the strength to stand in this moment. We were called for such a time as this. This is the real deal. You were created for this moment in history. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this moment, God. Father, I pray that you would continue to reveal in your word your glory to us. Father, I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst and a deep desire to want to pursue you with all of our heart. Thank you, God. Father, we do pray that your glory would fall. But Father, we wouldn't just stand there and be mesmerized for eons. We would take and we would begin to move out and to take that glory with us wherever you would want us to go and to bring your glory into the arenas that you have called each and every one of us, those circles of influence We put our foot in, and Father, we bring change. We bring your presence. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. And we all said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a glorious week.